Chapter Sixteen of The Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Sixteen. The Shops and the Taverns. The prejudice against trade is quite a modern sort of snobbishness. Down to the eighteenth century, and there are later instances still, it was common for country gentlemen to apprentice their younger sons to tradesmen in the nearest town, and every one knows that the city merchants of old days were very often men of ancient family and gentle breeding. When there was a court party in bitter opposition to the city party, the prejudice had some natural and excusable reason in it. Nowadays, I imagine, its chief motive force is the desire of people in our tiresome and incessant social scramble to make the most of their own advantage by insisting on a social disability in others, and it exposes its meanness and futility by ceasing immediately when the trading is on a large scale. Happily it is nearly dead among the intelligent, but its stupidity annoys me and I am sorry, therefore, that I cannot help to slay it, in my remarks on the old shops of Piccadilly, by pointing to a number of bygone tradesmen with beautiful, or at any rate, interesting qualities. Alas, I cannot. Men who build up and run successful businesses have intelligence and strength of character, and most often prudence and temperance. But these are cold virtues, not striking or picturesque. Their useful lives are necessarily a little humdrum or so. Nothing very passionate or romantic is likely to be recorded of them. So one falls back on the characters of the shops, which, of course, may have an individuality of their own, partly made up of association with famous customers. Their present functions, where they still exist, are, of course, beside my theme, but they have ghostly memories. Among the shops of Piccadilly, Booksellers have been from very early days honourably prominent. There was Wright's at 169, for example, where the Anti-Jacobin was published, and where, indeed, the editors laboured on the first floor. I fear that few of my readers, to whom this is news, are likely to go and gaze reverently on the building. Social satire, when it is really good, is more or less for all time, but political satire dies. We all know the needy knife-grinder, but how many of us know anything else which appeared in the anti-Jacobin? However, George Canning was greater than the paper he inspired, and Wright's shop, as Hatchard's a little later, must have known him well. He lived for a while nearly opposite, in Albany, and must have been a familiar figure crossing Piccadilly. In and outside Wright's shop there took place a famous row. One might have had a separate chapter on the rows of Piccadilly. A violent row, but not on a great scale like Sir Francis Burdett's, or a romantic attempt at murder like Bloods's on the Duke of Ormond, or even a gentlemanly row like my Lord's Bath and Hervey's duel just inside the Green Park and only one of those unseemly scuffles which were all that literary men, in past ages of course, I mean, were generally able to accomplish. Gifford was a great critic and editor, as you know, and Walcott, known as Peter Pindar, was also a great critic, and they hated one another. Gifford wrote an Epistle to Peter Pindar, in which he remarked that 
thou canst not think nor have i power to tell how much i scorn and loathe thee so farewell it was rather a boyish insult and i can lay my hand on my heart and say that if any one said it to me i should laugh walcott however was furious and waited for gifford outside rights and rushing after him into the shop gave him one on the knob with a stick but gifford who in boyhood had used his hands at sea and in a bootmaker's shop was too strong for walcott and rolled him in the gutter i hope he did it without assistance but there is a regrettable mention of a bystander's seizing walcott's arm he was really very silly to mind gifford's loathing him no such painful scene ever troubled the piece of hatchards which was originally hard by at a hundred and seventy-three for my knowledge of this famous shop's history i am indebted to an interesting book about it written by mr arthur humphreys who does well to be proud that the business over which he presides has such a long and full tradition of the original hatchard however who had his training as a bookseller with the celebrated tom paine and set up for himself at a hundred and seventy three in seventeen ninety seven paying thirty one pounds ten shillings for the goodwill and forty pounds rent i do not find much to repeat in fact i think the most interesting thing mr humphreys gives us about the man himself is a detailed description of his dress for that allows us to picture him accurately as he moved among his customers he was invariably dressed in black his coat was of the style of a bishop's frock-coat waistcoat buttoning to the throat with an entirely plain front and knee-breeches and gaiters a most respectable figure indeed he did a thriving business in pamphlets publishing in the very first year one which was an immense success to wit reform or ruin take your choice which appears to have been a spirited exhortation to respectability and was written by no less a person than john bowdler father of the more notorious thomas hatchard moved to a hundred and ninety in eighteen o one and later to a hundred and eighty seven where the business now is the political pamphlets were in the tory interest and the people who frequented hatchards to loaf and gossip there in the pleasant fashion of that day were mostly on the tory side sydney smith glanced at them with unkind humour in an edinburgh review article in eighteen ten there is a set of well-dressed prosperous gentlemen who assemble daily at mr hatchard's shop clean civil personages well in with the people in power delighted with every existing institution and almost with every existing circumstance and every now and then one of these personages writes a little book and the rest praise that little book expecting to be praised in their turn for their own little books and of these little books thus written by these clean civil personages so expecting to be praised the pamphlet before us appears to be one we have heard of such societies mutually helpful in the book-pushing way since that date equally clean and civil let us hope hatchard's was also the rendezvous of societies more formally constituted the royal horticultural society was formed there and so was a much more amusing society called the outinian this was a body for the promotion of marriages 
an object it was to attain by the dubious process of inquiring into the suitability of the contracting parties and supplying helpful information to members who intended to marry it began its meetings by the consumption of tea and buns john hatchard it appears lent his initials as well as his premises to this agreeable little institution and mr humphreys wonders how he could have mixed himself up in so absurd an affair i hope i may suggest without disrespect to the notoriously altruistic nature of publishers that john charged something as for the appearance of hatchards when the clean and civil personages and the outinians met there it was much as it is now with a bench outside for servants a fireplace those features restored by mr humphreys a table with the daily papers on it and chairs for the weary and sleepy it was lit of course by oil lamps one may imagine all sorts of celebrities buying books at hatchards of those more particularly associated with it were macaulay who used to be sent in his youth to buy books there by hannah moore hannah herself who longed as a girl to go to london to see bishops and booksellers and william wilberforce booksellers like brave men need a bard if their memories are to live and it is thanks to mr humphreys that i have lingered over hatchards but there are others who at least must be mentioned ridgeways was already established when hatchard went to piccadilly alman opposite burlington house also was gone succeeded by debrett who had been in partnership with him a letter to edmund burke in seventeen eighty two refers pleasantly to that common sink of filth and fiction the shop of alman and debrett in piccadilly the reason of this description was that almons a great wig firm had published the letters in favour of wilkes etc in seventeen sixty four i wish we had still those political antagonisms in shops a shop which has followed mr humphrey's good example and issued an account of itself is that of fortnum and mason ministering to the body as hatchards to the mind a m b has written an informing little brochure with interesting pictures about piccadilly and this ancient house of good things to eat it beats hatchards indeed in point of antiquity for the business was started appropriately in the days of queen anne who as we know liked tea and things to eat and drink generally and it has been in piccadilly for a hundred and fifty years stuart's too the confectioner at the corner of bond street is an ancient affair but i want a hero as byron says or at least a character i'll therefore take our ancient friend hoby the bootmaker who was deservedly thought a character in his day my seemingly irrelevant quotation was in fact a subconscious inspiration for there is a reference to hoby in one of byron's letters it was in eighteen twenty at the time of queen caroline's trial and byron writes i hear mr hoby says that it makes him weep to see her she reminded him so much of jane shaw jane shaw was a popularly pathetic part in the theatre of the time but certainly it was not a happy simile for hoby to make and byron wrote a verse on it mr hoby the bootmaker's soft heart is sore for seeing the queen makes him think of jane shaw and in fact 
he has two lines more but in another letter he omits them and so will i on the whole hobie was in business at a hundred and sixty piccadilly in eighteen o eight as an advertisement in the stranger's guide to london of that date informs us he was a humorist hobie as well as a man of sentiment when a dissatisfied young ensign threatened to leave him he turned to his shopman with an order to put up the shutters for that was all over he was a ruined man a king among bootmakers was hobie to discourse much further of shops might bring me too near to writing a stranger's guide to london of my own but i must not forego a compliment to lincoln bennett's hat shop for the distinction of standing where stood the house of sir william petty founder of the lansdowne family and friend of samuel pepys one might think in one's haste that taverns would make a livelier subject but the thoughtful reader is aware that few reflections are more melancholy than those suggested by long-gone feasting and drinking it is sadder to think that those who laughed than that those who wept are dead happily however the local associations of good cheer have a way of persisting the white bear inn for example had a history of nigh two hundred years before it disappeared and the criterion restaurant keeps up the general association on its site the white bear had memories of art about it benjamin west lay there when he arrived from america and luke sullivan who engraved hogarth's march to finchley died there so died another engraver one chatelaine in seventeen forty four he had in excess what i suppose the enemies of artists mean by the artistic temperament he engraved for mr toms who paid him a shilling an hour having worked for half an hour he would demand his sixpence and spend it forthwith in drink as mr wheatley says this was a very improvident man deus sit propitius it was fitting he should die in a tavern there was a black bear as well as a white bear at this end of piccadilly the black rival was nearly opposite until eighteen twenty not knowing its exact site i am fain to hope some restaurant or other stands on it there is no such doubt about the gloucester coffee-house and hotel for that was at the corner of berkeley street where is now the berkeley sometime called the st james's hotel the gloucester was a very old house and i find it flourishing in eighteen o five when a dear little book called the picture of london advertises it as supplying good soups dinners wines and beds the soups suggest a warm refreshment before starting by coach in the morning and of course these piccadilly inns were famous for coaching connections there was the three kings at number sixty seven whence general palmer started the first mail coach to bath and where stands the present hatchets there was the old white horse cellar at a hundred and fifty five the ritz now occupies that site it is mentioned by stripe in seventeen twenty and my picture of london tells us that this house is well known to the public on account of the great number of stage-coaches which regularly call there in a pleasant coffee-room passengers can wait for any of the stages and travellers in general are well accommodated with beds one imagines of course a great deal of bustle in these taverns and coffee-houses of old it has been called to life in books often enough 
the english it is said and truly i think have grown more reserved in manner and certainly have grown more to a pattern one must imagine many more eccentrics much more shouting and advice and protest and argument than one can hear now at a railway station more variety and colour of dress too and altogether a livelier and gayer scene while we are imagining too we must not forget the commonplace that the taverns were crowded with folk well acquainted with one another and talking intimately together who now would go to clubs that is still to some extent the case with the lower classes but with no others even bohemia has left the tavern for the club although i have known more than one public house where artists of one sort or another were to be regularly found certainly no squire western of to-day coming to london would drink and collogue with the landlord of an inn as fielding's squire western did with him of the hercules pillars that famous inn was at hyde park corner and stood there as late as seventeen ninety seven being mentioned as early by wycherley in his plain dealer as sixteen seventy six the great marquis of granby who gave his name to so many other inns used to frequent it and as i said in my first chapter sheridan and captain matthews went there when they were interrupted in their duel about the melodious miss linley there was many another tavern at hyde park corner a red lion and a golden lion and so forth and by the way at the beginning of the eighteenth century a place called winstanley's water theatre where mechanical contrivances astonished our simple ancestors it advertised as its great attraction in a guardian of seventeen thirteen six sorts of wine and brandy to drink the queen's health all coming out of the barrel with biscuit and spa water and as peace is enlarged there will be added claret pale ale stout and water playing out of the head of the barrel when it is in the pulley the ingenious henry winstanley among other devices in his house at littlebury had one passing strange if a visitor so it is said kicked an old slipper lying on the floor a ghost started up before him winstanley's ghost if it walks must pass from the scene of his entertainment at hyde park corner up piccadilly to the site of the egyptian hall and muse over conjuring improvements man and his marvels pass away and it is not strange that water theatre and egyptian hall should be gone but it does seem odd that of the eight or so public houses at hyde park corner not one remains the fact must sadden many a ghostly toper end of chapter 16